following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. If you've been studying Gnosticism and our tradition for some time, you'll be very familiar with a plethora of practices, exercises that we use to develop our complete potential. Most Westerners, especially in terms of development, have a preponderance for the intellect. What we tend to focus more of in our studies is a path of balance. Because we in the West tend to be very intellectual, very theoretical, very philosophical, we often have a deficit in the heart. It's important that when we study ourselves and the nature of our own psychology, that we take the time to identify our weaknesses. It's important that we examine our heart, our quality of life, our inner states. Our purpose in this lecture today is to address that need. Primarily since despite our common conceptions in North America or in Western countries, the heart has a more profound intelligence than the mind. There are capacities to our heart that are very deep and which in our modern lifestyle we tend to neglect or we fundamentally ignore. This is evident by the widespread problems associated with emotion. You find that people in life are afflicted with great stress, anger, pride, fear, resentment, anguish. And it is a fundamental mistake through our education systems 
through our upbringing, through our childhood, that we try to resolve the problems of the heart with the mind. And this is like using the wrong tool to build a house. In order to create a structure, we need the right tools. We need to address the right problem with the right methods. In terms of religious studies or the symbolism of different traditions that we study, we look especially to Christianity and to Buddhism. We have here an image of the Christ with the sacred heart inflamed. The Master Jesus, more than just embodying a figure to worship or to follow, represents something very deep within our consciousness. This is why in our Gnostic studies we explain that the physical personages of the past from diverse religious traditions came to represent principles. They lived in their flesh and bone a state of being that we need to cultivate. And therefore, Christ as the human individual represents in us the principle of the inner Christ, our inner divinity, that light which can shine within the depths of our very heart to illumine the mistakes of our past and the state of our suffering. Our focus today is to learn how to develop that principle in us, to understand what it means psychologically, and to know how to apply methods to develop greater insight in our daily life in terms of how we approach problems, how we cultivate virtue, and also how we uh, conquer vice. We will learn how to awaken, develop, sustain, and expand the intelligence of the heart, the wisdom of the heart, the ability to understand very deeply how to negotiate and navigate the great crises that are afflicting our contemporary humanity. We will also learn that the heart must learn to balance the mind if what we really seek is genuine peace. And lastly, we're going to explain a very deep verse given by Samalan Vior in his Aquarian message. Love and wisdom are the secret path of the heart. The wisdom of the seal of the heart is for children. In other words, for those who do not commit adultery with Jezebel, who called herself a prophetess. Like many sayings given by Samalan Vior in his books, they are not meant for leisurely reading. It's not like reading a newspaper or a novel. Each verse and each line compacts entire traditions and basically knowledge, experiential deep things that are very practical. What we'll do is we'll expand upon this what love and wisdom consist of in life, in the practical daily grind, in the great moments of affliction and suffering and sorrow.
ordeals. This is the path of the heart, the secret path, the path of inner initiation into higher mysteries from experience. As we'll explain, this wisdom is the seal of the heart. It is the perfection. It is what leads to the culmination of a highly refined individual, not from mere study, but from the crucible of great hardship, from the heat and extremity of challenges in life, and through refinement of our deepest errors, we learn to acquire and develop and realize our primordial original root state, the state of the consciousness, the state of the soul. That state is like a child, innocent, pure, wise, not naive, not foolish. It is an attitude that learns to investigate things without prejudice, without assumption. It is a mind and a heart that know how to explore reality and understand its mysteries from experience without the mortifying shackles of theory and belief. Also, this secret path is for those who don't commit adultery with Jezebel. If you're familiar with the biblical verses, in the New Testament especially, Jezebel was an individual, a symbol of a type of mind, a type of attitude that is very common today. A personality that believes it can predict the future, that it understands the ways of the world, the materialistic dialectic, the theories, the concepts, the jargon of modern day living. It is a false prophetess, a false attitude, a mistaken mind. We'll explain these verses very deeply, what they mean. But first, we have to understand wisdom and love. In our specific work in the Gnostic teachings, we try to acquire balance. We seek to look in our own daily life, what behaviors, what impulses, what desires disequilibrate our mental state, our heart. We look to the facts. We look to the reality in its harshness and its direct painful circumstances to extract real deep wisdom about how to live appropriately. Obviously in our modern life, we're very extreme. Our jobs tend to be very intellectual. We tend to use the mind at the expense of our heart. Or if we have a job that involves our heart, such as acting or theater, many people tend to exploit and eventually degenerate the heart through too much passion, too much negative feeling, emotions that really take the volatile and also very profound force of the heart and channel it through mistaken ways. 
In this process of acquiring balance, we study the tree of life. It's a glyph we return to again and again. It is a map of consciousness. Commonly associated with Jewish mysticism, it is not merely the sole property of Judaism. It's a universal symbol. It's been represented in different traditions in different languages and different names. But we use the Kabbalah to use the 13th century Spanish and Southern French uh, tradition, especially this glyph, to codify a constellation of very abstract symbols. These symbols become very real and living when we understand what they mean. You notice that there are three pillars here. This tree of life mentioned in the Bible with ten spheres. It is an image representing the complete human being. The three pillars, the left and the right, and the middle, constitute the fundamental reality of our life. The left pillar is associated with, you can say, severity, justice. And the right pillar represents love. It represents wisdom. It represents mercy. In synthetic language, in referencing what Samanvir wrote here in Fundamentals of Gnostic Education, you find that wisdom is associated with the left pillar. Real wisdom comes through understanding the harsh facts, why we are in pain, what do we do to create our situation and to perpetuate it again and again through our habits, our attachments. Wisdom is the ability to deeply and profoundly introspect and understand our mind. And love? Love is the right pillar, the pillar of mercy. It is the pillar that know, is the pillar or principle or quality that knows how to forgive oneself and others. These two pillars, these principles, govern the structure of being, the structure of divinity. It governs the structure of consciousness, how we operate psychologically, moment by moment, instant by instant. These two pillars must be balanced by the middle pillar. It is the pillar of equilibrium. It is not enough to have wisdom in life, to have some form of knowledge or instruction or education, although that is very fundamental and we need it, especially as we grow up and enter adulthood, to acquire a job, a career, to know how to have a family, how to support ourselves, how to help others. It's not enough just to have knowledge and wisdom. We must have love. We must have compassion for others. We must know how to give of ourselves in whatever capacity we are able to be a contributive member of society. Love by itself is not enough. It has to be informed by wisdom. It is not enough to love someone. We have to know how to love them. 
You can love a family member who is addicted. A person who is an alcoholic, who is repeating behaviors that are very harmful. But if you do not know how to help them, how to love them appropriately, to give them the support that they need, the help, that love is meaningless or it is ineffective. This is why Salman Vior said in Fundamentals of Gnostic Education, Wisdom and love are the two basal pillars of every true civilization. On one plate of the scale of cosmic justice, we must place wisdom, and on the other, we must place love. Wisdom and love must be mutually equilibrated. Wisdom without love is a destructive element. Love without wisdom can lead us into error. Love is law, but cognizant love. Wisdom without love is destructive. Look at the atom bomb. Look at weapons of mass destruction. Knowledge, wisdom about how to manipulate nature, but without any ethic behind it. And love, by itself, without being sustained by insight about how to effectively act, can lead us into mistakes. This is why love is the law, but conscious, intelligent, wise. This tree of life is a map of the heart, the map of the complete human being. We look to the Hebrew letters to understand some very interesting correlations, which can inform our understanding of this glyph. Hebrew is read right to left. The Hebrew word for heart is leb. Lamed, bet. And each Hebrew letter relates to a number. Lamed is equivalent to 30. In bet, to two. 30 plus two are known as the 32 paths of God in the Kabbalistic Hebrew mystical Jewish tradition. This in itself constitutes 22 Hebrew letters of the alphabet of Kabbalah, the Jewish mysticism, in 10 spheres of being. These 10 spheres are known as sephirot. They mean jewels. They are expressions of divinity, qualities of divinity, qualities of mind, qualities of being, states of consciousness. They are jewels because when these spheres or these principles are perfected in us, we illuminate ourselves. We receive illumination. We become like a divine jewel, a beautiful, resplendent thing that shines like a ring upon the hand of divinity. Pure, radiant, sublime. So the heart must be cleaned. It must be polished. Because right now, if we are sincere and examine our habits in life, we can find many moments, many situations, many relationships, many states that we know are harmful. We feel weak. We have pain. We look for solutions. We look for things outside of us that will correct the problem. The reality is that the external circumstances of life are merely the reflection of what we have inside. 
And if we change fundamentally within our interior, circumstances radically change. It is a fundamental law. It is a fundamental reality and it's something that we can verify. While we talk a lot about Christianity and Buddhism especially, we can also relate the mystical teachings of Islam, known as Sufism, which for its merit has uh, strived against literal orthodoxy, interpretations of the Quran, which can be very dead letter. In fact, this tradition is very rich and beautiful as well and teaches many things that are of a practical import, things that we can apply to our life. Similar to the Jewish tradition and the Jewish, uh, the Hebrew language, you have the Arabic. Arabic is a Semitic language. And likewise, each Arabic letter refers to numbers. The Sufis do not refer to this system as Kabbalah. They refer to it as the Abjad system, in which you interpret the words of certain Arabic um, names or terms to understand deeper principles behind them, similar to Hebrew. We have here the word Kalb in Arabic, which means heart. And Kalb, the heart, is the equivalent of Lev in Hebrew. The heart has a very special place within the Sufi mystical tradition, the mystical tradition of Islam. The solution to our problems and sufferings in life is that we learn to reconnect to a superior state of being. This is not found in the future. It is not found in the past. It is living in the moment. The heart awakens to superior, higher, more beautiful states of being when we polish it. The heart is rusted in its current state. It is like stone. Many people do not even know how to feel or because of repression, no longer acknowledge the great turmoil of their daily life. It is by openly confronting our emotions and even being willing to sit in them as overwhelming they might be, that we learn to polish. Not rejecting, not affirming, watching. That state of watchfulness is precisely the doorway of the heart that opens us up to being able to experience and understand what divinity is. To remember the presence of divinity, not outside, inside, in the heart in the moment, the presence, the state. As it says in the oral tradition of Islam, the Hadith, there is an organ in the body that, if it is righteous, ensures that the whole system will be righteous. And if it is corrupt, the whole body will become corrupt. This organ is the heart. There is a polish for everything that takes away rust, and the polish for the heart is zikir the remembrance of God. Well, this is a very difficult thing for many people, especially when we approach religion. We hear this teaching about remembering divinity. And obviously this can be very confusing. How does one remember a state of divinity 
to know divinity, to experience divinity, especially in one's daily life, especially when we are so clouded, so jaded, so afflicted. Remembrance is a state of watchfulness. It is active looking. It is observation. It is examining the heart, looking at it, not knowing that one is angry, not knowing that one is afraid, observing the fact. In that state of observation, of looking, of watchfulness, of mindfulness, we start to see new things. We feel new things. We gather data and we learn what in the heart is pure and what is not. This is a very different quality of or state of being that we in the West are especially not acquainted with because we forget ourselves. When faced with a circumstance, a distraction, an object of interest, we become fascinated. We don't even remember our body. We know this when we watch a movie. You watch a film, you see its images, its characters, its dramas. And yet, in that moment, while focused on the film, feeling the feelings of the characters, one does not even feel one's own body or has any awareness of it. This is a profound state of sleep. The mind is active, but the heart is not. The soul, the consciousness is not awake. The consciousness must be awakened. This state of mindfulness, serenity, which is able to look without being disturbed by what it sees, unwavering, equal in terms of good and bad, yes and no, attachment or craving or aversion, equanimitous, clear, direct. This is the power of the heart, the power of the soul which in Arabic is kaf, lam, ba. Kaf is equivalent to 100. Lam is equivalent to 30. And ba to 2. In synthesis, you add those numbers together. 132. You can even take the digit, the first digit, apply it to 32. You get 33. Numbers are very interesting. They're not merely for arithmetic. Numbers within mysticism are very spiritual. They represent many things, which is why when you study scriptures like the Bible, you find many prominent numbers. 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years and 40 days and 40 nights, meditating in the wild and being tempted by the devil. 33 years in the life of Jesus, 33 vertebrae of the spine, the 33 canons or degrees of Freemasonry. These are all symbols about how one works with the heart. How does one master oneself? The spine is made of 33 vertebrae and our spine is our tree of life. The spine can be a receptacle of higher energies and realities and principles. And we cultivate the energies of the spine through many forms of yoga those energies rise in accordance with the heart. 
the quality of our ethics, the quality and purity of our emotion. Even the name Muhammad in Arabic has the same meaning numerically. Mim ha mim mim dal. 40 plus 8 plus 40 plus 40 plus 4 is 132. You get the same synthesis. 32 plus 1 is 33. As I was saying about the Master Jesus, he represents something inside of us. And likewise, Prophet Muhammad in that Muslim tradition represents the powers of the heart, the realities of the heart. This brings us to our next point. If we want to have greater equanimity in our daily life, we have to know how to think and feel. Obviously, in our modern world, we can't avoid thinking. It's not like we're just going to go into mystical ecstasy, abandon the world, give up the mind, and avoid it altogether. That's also a wrong attitude. We need to live in our society as contributive members, good citizens, good parents, good children, good husbands and wives. Abandoning the world does not resolve the problem of disequilibrium. Although retreats in the past at monasteries and temples were very useful for cultivating a state of serenity, only so that by returning into the world, one has greater focus by which to tackle the problems of life. Strict avoidance is basically rejected in these studies. We don't want to avoid reality, life, modern living, the problems of existence. We want to master them. And if going on retreat for some time to help balance our mind and heart is necessary, we do so. But with the understanding that it is temporary. When we study ourselves, we have to learn how to think and how to feel. Our jobs may be very demanding intellectually. We require the use of the intellect to solve problems, to analyze, to interpret, to communicate. We will not abandon thought in these studies, but it is important that we know how to use it in its orbit. It is possible to use the intellect in an intuitive way. This is very subtle and very beautiful. The intellect must be balanced. A mind that is afflicted, it is full of doubt or confusion, distracted, wandering from thing to thing, association to association, looking for answers, looking at options, is a mind that is divided. The type of thought we were communicating here that is superior is understanding. It is intuitive rather than the mind deliberating and projecting its ideas and projects, analyzing. We learn to make the mind more receptive. We make it calm. We make it serene. So that when the mind is very still like a lake, suddenly new insights can enter emerge spontaneously, without effort, without exertion. Suddenly, like a lightning hits us, and then we realize the problem and its solution. We know what to do. We didn't have to sit and churn and clench our fists and clench our foreheads thinking, how am I going to solve this? Instead, 
it comes to us effortlessly. Likewise, we have to know how to feel. To feel is to, you know, not merely just to experience emotions passively, like suddenly someone insults us and we become angry. We have to learn to navigate emotion with intelligence, to identify the moment in which anger is about to bloom. Someone insults us, the impression or words hit our mind, hit our heart, and then the reaction emerges. If we're watching, if we're observing the fact, in the moment, and you watch, you wait, you look, you can suddenly differentiate that there's a part of ourselves that is trying to create harm, the reaction, the anger. This is a defect. This is a mistake. And in that act of watching and observing, we recognize that there is a part of us that is superior, that is not conditioned yet, that is not stuck, invested in the anger, unless we give it its, its our energy. That's another story. And that obviously complicates and makes problems worse. Acting on anger, acting on resentment, acting on pride. So there's an interesting dynamic to learn in ourselves. And we do this by studying what's known as the three brains. We have the intellect, the emotions, and our sexuality. We have the brain in our cranium, our skull. Our emotion, our heart, is also a brain in the sense that it is a center of physiological action which processes intelligence, energy, life, sentiment, emotion. Likewise, we have our sexuality, which is part of a larger system, a conglomerate of our instincts, our desires, and our sexuality can relate to our spine, but also our sexual organs. When you watch and observe your mind, your heart, and your sexuality, your desires, we acquire data. We start to see light, shine light on the dark parts of ourselves and to understand how our mind, our emotions, and how our desires act. When we study this dynamic, this system in ourselves, we find that the brain, heart, and sexual centers are very deeply integrated or related. They're not integrated in us because in one moment we can think one thing, feel another, and have the impulse to act in very contradictory ways. We actually are a disunity despite the form of our body. Psychologically, we are not a unity. Physically, we are. But psychologically, we are not. What we want to do is integrate these centers. We want them to function under one master and not many. Obviously, the intellect may have the desire to read, to conceptualize, to theorize. The heart may feel fear, emotional distress over a problem. And our impulses may push us to want to run away or to fight or to freeze. These three centers are not working optimally. And so what we want is to learn to balance them, 
and to understand the relationship between all three, all three brains, so that they work harmoniously. We do that by mostly really developing our heart. But obviously there's other parts of us that we need to cultivate. It's not just that we want to focus on developing our heart, although that's a very major part, especially for us, typically. We have practices in our tradition that you know help us to balance all three brains. Especially we work with energies known as uh, work or practices known as transmutation, where we take energy in our sexual organs, raise them up the spine to our brain, and then send them to our heart. There are centers or better said channels that exist not merely in the physical body, but in our energetic bodies, parts of us that are not merely physical, but energetic. This is very well known within Chinese medicine, known as meridians. They're channels. They're like tubes or conduits that can allow energy to flow, especially if we do it consciously with a lot of purity and divine intention. So the heart and the mind need to be connected to our sexuality. And the primary practice we use, especially in our studies, is pranayama. It's a breathing exercise in which you take the energies of our creativity, which is in our sexual organs. You conserve that force. You never expel it. You cultivate it with prayer, with love for divinity. And you raise it with breath up the spine, up a two energy channels, which are related to the symbol of medicine. It's like a, an eight on the spine, the number eight, the caduceus of mercury, two serpents rising on a staff up to the head. And then we take the energies that are settled in the mind, which purify the mind, give it light and harmony, and then we send it to the heart. The primary instrument that accomplishes this feat is our emotional state our intention, our attitude. Most of us have a mind and a sexuality that are dissonant. They don't integrate. The intellect is out of whack because really the energies that we have in our body are typically not used in a good way. That energy which can give life to a child is the energy that can give life to the spirit. This is why Jesus said you must be born again to create a new way of being. So, really, the Holy Eight, the Caduceus of Mercury, the energetic channels of the spine connect the mind and sex and then the heart. But in us, really in most people, the mind is sluggish, lacking force lacking real spiritual intelligence, understanding. It is a overactive and hyper mind that tends to be distracted. But by working with pranayama, we calm the mind and we elevate the heart. But obviously for many people in these studies, learning to transmute sexual energy can be very difficult because obviously in our modern life, we have bad habits or we've had bad habits for a long time. And then we're trying to cultivate a spiritual practice. And so it's about training the body, training the mind and training the heart to know how to operate in a different way. This is why the intellect is so stubborn. In the beginning, it can be hard to concentrate, to focus on the practice, to remember how to do it. 
to not let the mind wander, to think of other things. And the body, agitated, wants to move, is frustrated, in pain, has an itch, has a scratch. And our emotions may be all over the place because we're in a lot of turmoil. If we are diligent with this exercise day by day, it'll help to uh, help us to acquire equilibrium, balance, calm. But in the beginning, the mind fights sex and sex fights the mind. However, there are deeper problems than this, even just getting past some basic knowledge of transmutation, as indicated by Samal and Vior. The brain, heart, and sex of the genie of the earth are symbolically placed in the Holy Eight, in the symbol of the infinite. So the planet Earth, spiritually speaking, has a holy symbol in its core. It's a symbol of us, because we ourselves, our body is like the Earth. It is material. And the genie that operates it is the genius of the consciousness, which must know how to awaken to work with these two energy centers, the two serpents or the caduceus and mercury, which form the infinite on the spine. The two opposed circles of the Holy Eight represent brain and sex. The center of the Holy Eight is the symbolic seed of the heart. Terrible is the fight of brain against sex, sex against brain. And what is even more terrible and most bitter is the fight of heart against heart. So, Many people struggle with working with transmutation. Their brain is battling their sex. They're trying to control the energies, learn to dominate the sexual force, to not have it be an adversary, but to make it a friend. Struggling with, you know, conserving that force and transforming it. And sex, desire, passions, animality pushes against the initiate, fights wants the satisfaction of its lusts. And so sex and brain are in battle. Obviously, this can be rectified through consistent and daily practice. And it is achievable. Balance can be formed. But more difficult than just the battle between sex and brain is heart against heart. This has to do with the ordeals of our life. Our circumstances, our challenges. Maybe we have a fight with our partner. We have an argument with our spouse. The pain of heart against heart is very deep. And this is why individuals, students, instructors must learn to have a lot of equilibrium with the sexual energy. Control it, make it our slave and we its master. Not by just mere exertion and force, but through understanding patience so that when those energies are working upright our consciousness is enlivened it's inflamed it's inspired so that when we face ordeals in life challenges circumstances in which we are tested we have an argument with a co-worker a friend or whomever the pain of heart against heart is alleviated or reduced. In synthesis, the mind must become the vehicle of the heart, as I was saying. The intellect must be calm, must be serene, more receptive 
and the heart, the consciousness, superior emotions like love and compassion, insight must be awakened. Salman Vera had some very interesting explanations about this, which can help inform our practical life. The mind must convert itself into an instrument of the heart. We must learn to think with the heart. The mind must flow delectably with the exquisite feeling of the heart. The mind must become lovely and simple. The wisdom of the heart illuminates the mind. The wisdom of the heart is placed in the chalice of the mind as the blood of redemption. The mind of the arhat, the meditator, is symbolized by the holy grail. The heart's love is the summum of wisdom. Think with the heart. This is a very different mechanism. It's actually not mechanical. It's a different form of being. If you have a job that's very intellectual, learn to perform it more with the heart. Learn how to do it consciously with the heart. How you relate to others. How you respond to others. How you understand others. Look at your relationships. Use the intelligence of your conscience, the voice of the silence, that which knows right from wrong, even if the intellect lacks a definition for it. It can only label with terminology and vapid pleonisms. Instead, the heart must learn to observe, to watch. And the mind, with its thoughts, its memories, its associations, must learn to flow. But it doesn't predominate in our intellect. This cannot be achieved through force. It's achieved through serenity, through observation, through watching. And the feelings of the heart must become more sensitive. This is achieved through, really, remembrance. Being in a state of watchfulness. Observing, not qualifying, looking. When our heart predominates in terms of the wisdom of the heart, we suddenly get insights and understandings or intuitions about what to do at our jobs, in our marriages, in our careers. If we're watching our emotions, our heart, our intuition will tell us what to do, what to say, what to think, how to act. That's a connection to our inner divinity. It is a form of light. It is a state of perception that is unfiltered, in which we see reality. We understand ourselves. We understand other people. But that has to occur when the mind is no longer projecting its worries, its doubts, its fears. Turn off the projector, or at least if the director in our mind is trying to dictate everything in life, observe the fact and let the intellect exhaust itself, but you do not enter into a struggle with it, grappling with it, fighting it, forcing it, because that makes things worse. Just watch. Look. This is the form of the Holy Grail, like the mind, a chalice that can receive the wine of God, superior knowledge, supreme wisdom, understanding about how to work practically in life. This type of perception is very different from our common and ordinary state of mind. 
we tend to go through our job and career, our life with a lot of habits. You know, we have our schedules, our, our demands, the things we need to do moment by moment at certain points. Some of our jobs may be more scripted. Some of us may have more freedom. Maybe we're independent, have our own business. We set our schedule, whatever it may be. We have patterns. We have obligations. We have systems. The thing to remember is that in the grind of life, through the mechanicity of circumstances, the things that repeat again and again, we have to learn to approach it with novelty. No matter how redundant our career or job may be, our married life, our careers, our family experience, we have to learn to approach things with a fresh perspective every time we approach it, to know how to enter the mechanicity of life and to operate or to respond to it without mechanicity. This form of perception is not intellectual. It's not labeling. It's a state of consciousness. It's a state of the heart. The heart which knows how to navigate, to look, to orient our moral compass about how to respond to people and situations. Ibn Arabi is a great Sufi mystic from the Muslim mystical tradition. He wrote some verses in the divine governance of the human kingdom, which emphasize and reiterate these points. He emphasizes that the heart has its own intelligence. It has nothing to do with deduction or analysis, comparison, association, theory, labeling, naming, identifying, deliberating. Instead, the heart can learn to see the reality of a situation, the reality of the mind, and know how to respond with momentariness, freshness, lightness. Spontaneity doesn't mean that one's impulsive. It means that one is correct and is adaptable, can navigate hard situations and respond with wisdom because the barometer of success is that our communities improve, our relationships strengthen, people respect us more, people want to be with us, they want to be a part of our life. We benefit them, we help others, we give them inspiration, happiness, joy, contentment, belonging. This is a state of compassion, of love that is balanced with insight. And there are some principles given by Ibn Arabi that relate to the Buddhist tradition as well, which we'll emphasize. Things that will clarify and cohere some of the points we've made. We think we, that we see with our eyes. The information, the influences of perception are due to our senses. While the real influence, the meaning of things, the power behind what sees and what is seen can be reached neither by the senses, nor by deduction and analysis, comparison, contrasts, and associations made through intellectual theories. The invisible world can only be penetrated by the eye and the mind of the heart. Indeed, the reality of this visible also can only be seen by the mind and the eye of the heart. What we think we see is but veils which hide the reality of things, things whose truth, whose meaning may not be revealed until those veils are lifted. It is only when the dark veils of imagination and preconception are raised that the divine light, Bodhi, 
will penetrate the heart, chitta, enabling the inner eye to see. Then neither the sunlight or the light of a candle will become a metaphor for the divine light. But the terms I related here are Sanskrit, although this is an Arabic teaching given by Ibn Arabi, Sufi teaching. His statements are corroborated by experience. We can look to in a moment in our life in which we think someone is mad at us or has ill intentions. We have a wrong impression. We're convinced by our own narrative about who someone is, their station in life, what they want from us, what they intend. And yet, through confrontation or experience, through unveiling, we realize that we were wrong. This person was not what we thought they were. We were veiled by our own preconception, our own doubt, maybe frustration or passion, maybe fear. This is a mental state. It is a conscious state in which we did not see reality. We were veiled by our own mind. And fantasy, our own preconceptions, are erased when we shine bodhi, light, Sanskrit term for wisdom, into our heart, chitta. That light is perception. Bodhicitta is a Buddhist term referring to the light, wisdom, enlightenment, or awakening of the heart. It's a very deep term with a lot of application within diverse schools of Tibetan Buddhism especially. And we mentioned this in synthesis here because it refers to an altruistic attitude of enlightened compassion, selfless love that is informed by the insight into the nature of reality, the impermanence of phenomena, that sensations and perceptions of things are illusory. Like in the example I provided, we had the wrong impression of this individual, maybe a coworker or family member. We heard stories or tales or gossip and we believe it. And yet we see the reality and we're, we're mistaken. Real insight comes to us when the mind is charged with the light of the creative energy. And bodhicitta is in some sense an attitude. It is the aspiration to help all suffering beings escape pain. But it is informed by insight and wisdom, the knowledge for how to do it. Understanding the impermanence of life. Because nothing is eternal in life. Things change. Temporality, existence, impressions. Life enters us moment by moment, instant by instant, through sensations and our senses, through our thoughts and feelings, our instincts, our desires. And we do not tend to understand that even our own mental states are impermanent. They don't last. They bloom. They flower for a moment and then they die. They vanish. They emerge, they sustain, and they pass like clouds in a sky. We can only see this dynamic if we actively watch the origins of our thoughts, our feelings, our instincts, our impulses, our desires. This attitude of watchfulness is a state of perception in which we understand that our state of being is a multiplicity. We're constituted by many factors. We are a disunity, as I said. Watching that state and understanding its reality is understanding impermanence. 
that even parts of ourselves are not real. They don't last. They're not fundamental. But consciousness, the ability to watch and remember, to act with real love, is reality. So bodhicitta, really in the sense of Mahayana Buddhism, which is the intermediate level teaching of that tradition, is about compassionate love coupled by understanding of emptiness. That emptiness or impermanence, that nothing is substantial in and of itself, intrinsically real, but everything depends on something else, including circumstances. We cultivate bodhicitta through meditation. We cultivate bodhicitta through working with our creative energy. And we cultivate bodhicitta through service for others. Being a good person, being a good spouse, a good worker, whatever it may be, whatever our capacity in life, we fulfill it with humility and love and we serve to benefit others. In a sense, bodhicitta is reality. Understanding of reality. That because life is impermanent, we suffer. And other people suffer too because they are attached or they want to run away from facts. Therefore, by understanding their affliction, we have great compassion. And that compassion, that love for others and understanding of their states inspire us to want to work for them and to dedicate our spirituality for the benefit of our community so that it's practical. There is what is known as a heart doctrine, the doctrine of the heart. Blavatsky mentioned this in The Voice of the Silence. The heart doctrine, the Dharma of the heart, is the reality or understanding of truth, the reality of existence, the reality of life in being in us and in humanity. The Dharma of the eye, the doctrine of the eye, the philosophies of the eye, of appearances, are all the assumptions and beliefs that we have about ourselves that are not real. We think we are one way, but we are another. Really, I mean, if you get married, or if you're married, you will know what I mean. <laughs> I mean, you think you're one thing, but your spouse will point out to you your errors. If, and if you're humble, you'll make the changes that you need. But we are very much unconscious, right, of our own mistakes. Some people see our mistakes easier than we see our own, right? It's a common fact of life. That is the doctrine of the eye, of appearances beliefs, assumptions about identity and who we are, our characteristics, our personality. Some of it may be true, but in reality, these things are temporary. What is re real is the consciousness, the soul, that part of us which can resonate compassionately for other human beings and work for them. The Dharma of the eye is the embodiment of the external and the non-existing. The Dharma of the heart is the embodiment of Bodhi, the permanent and everlasting. So that state of the consciousness is real. It is reality, but we do not see it because we're clouded by appearances, by superficialities. This can change, especially when we practice meditation. So the Dalai Lama mentioned a few points that iterate what we've mentioned in the essence of the Heart Sutra, how Bodhicitta can be aspirational and it can be intentional or active. We can have the aspiration to want to help humanity, 
the joy or longing to be of service to our communities, but it's another thing to completely do it. So Buddhism makes a demarcation between aspirational and active bodhicitta because it's one thing to intend, but another thing to do. And so Gnosis, our Gnostic tradition, really emphasizes the practical, that we make the effort in our daily life to really embody these principles and live them. Here's what the Dalai Lama stated, corroborating our points about wisdom and love. According to Buddhism, compassion is an aspiration, a state of mind, wanting others to be free from suffering. It's not passive. It's not empathy alone, but rather an empathetic altruism that actively strives to free others from suffering. Genuine compassion must have both wisdom and loving kindness. That is to say, one must understand the nature of suffering from which we wish to free others. This is wisdom. And one must experience deep intimacy and empathy with other sentient beings. This is loving kindness. So compassion that works is love informed by wisdom. It's not enough to love a drug addict, but to know how to help them. We have to have wisdom. And why have compassion, especially as we're examining our own mind and attempting to grasp how to change our daily states, it's important to understand the sufferings of others. When we understand other people's suffering, we're more in tune with the heart. We have more remorse for our own mistakes and how we contribute to others' pain. But also we have greater intuition and sensitivity, greater understanding about how to help others, how to navigate the mind of others, and to inspire them and to help in whatever capacity we are able. There are three sufferings mentioned in Buddhism. The suffering of physical and mental pain, the suffering of change, and the suffering of conditioning. Obviously, we want to help people. Maybe if they're suffering physically, we have a job or career or we're in a position where we can help people ease their physical pain. Obviously, that's a great dharma and blessing. Also, mental pain as well, such as in our relationships, our interactions with people. We might want to be in tune with the feelings of others to understand what is causing them pain and to do what we can to help alleviate it to whatever degree possible. The suffering of change is much more profound relating to impermanence. In a sense, the suffering of change has to do with the fact that the cup of coffee that we had this morning won't last in the evening. So maybe we feel tired, you know, after a long day of work, you know, maybe appetite, hunger, we eat one moment of the day in breakfast, but then we suffer from change because nothing is permanent. You know, energy doesn't last forever in the sense of how it cycles through the body. Maybe we get hungry, we need to eat again. Or we have a circumstance in which we're at our job, we have a career, and then suddenly the job is over. We lose our job or we get laid off. That's a profound change that creates a lot of suffering for a lot of people. But more profound than that is the suffering of conditioning. This is the deepest form of pain in which we suffer because we have desire. We have defects. We have elements in our mind that are contradictory to our best spiritual aspirations. We have conditions of mind. 
states of being which keep us in a lot of suffering psychologically. We may want to be spiritual and to be a kind person, but we have anger. The circumstances arise, provoke that element in us, and then we react seemingly without cognizance if we're not watching, if we're not in remembrance. And that conditioning, that anger creates a lot of pain, not just for other people, but for ourselves. That's the consciousness that's trapped in that anger is profoundly in a state of pain because that anger is like a shell. It's a state of mind that traps the energy of the consciousness and processes it in accordance with its mechanicity, with its limitation. And so that is the greatest form of suffering. When we understand that other people have anger and pride and that they're really a slave to their desires, they can't help being what they are. We have greater love and compassion for them. And therefore, their words of insult or slander don't mean anything because we have the attitude of a doctor towards a sick person. Why be angry with the sick? Why be angry with the ill? The ignorant, the lost. We have to have great love for them because, and others because there are many conditions of mind that trap people's way of life. And when we see that in ourselves and that we too are helpless in many ways, we have greater compassion for other people because we have that conditioning too. And when we learn to see that conditioning in ourselves, we have greater love for others because we see that we're in the same boat. We just may have different defects than other people, more predominant features than others. So what we want to do in this process is to study ourselves and study the nature of real compassion, real love. We end with a a course from Glorian Publishing on compassion, a series of lectures that explain some aspects of Tibetan Buddhism especially, but also Christianity and the essence of the heart doctrine. We invite you to study this resource and to meditate on it. Part of this path of developing the qualities of the heart is learning to overcome that which is false in us, as emphasized in that biblical quote about Jezebel or the reference to the biblical Jezebel, the mind or prophetess that thinks it knows, but it does not. So we must become innocent like children, a state of being which is humble and pure. We can do so by learning to study some resources and practicing exercises like meditation, but also the resources we have available here. So at this point, I invite you to ask questions. You are welcome to write them in the chat. We have a question. Are there scenarios in life where euthanasia may be objectively the best choice? For example, for one suffering daily from serious brain damage and greatly diminished consciousness to the point where walking the path feels impossible. Obviously, that's something that's managed by divinity. You have to consult divinity and meditation, suspend the senses, suspend the mind, calm the heart, introspect and pray, ask in your being for the insight that you need and wait, allow the answer to come to you. Usually this will come in the form of maybe an image, a vision, a dream, 
these are scenarios that really have to be evaluated from a very clear conscience because there are serious repercussions in terms of acting in any way for and against. That's something that you have to really consult divinity for. We can't make those decisions. Really, I mean, compassion, the compassionate thing may be to do it or not. Only divinity will know. We have a question. I was wondering how you made the insight and connection of people needing to be the master of sex and of being our slave. Many spiritual traditions teach about initiates, masters, spiritual individuals, people who have acquired some higher state of enlightenment, whether through figures like Christ, the Virgin Mary, John the Baptist, many masters from diverse traditions and religions. They were the masters of themselves, not merely in their emotions, but in all aspects of their being. We know just from conventional wisdom that such gurus, masters, individuals are very rare. And this is precisely because they have learned to conquer a part of themselves that for most of us is untamed. This is the sexual energy, desire, passion. All the traditions throughout the world have a heart doctrine, an esoteric component to the faith that encodes a deeper knowledge that was not conveyed to the uninitiated. We have exceptions now because this knowledge is now allowed to be provided to the public. That knowledge that we are speaking of is about transmutation, the work with the sexual energy. We know from a basic level that really the creative sexual energy can create a child. But according to the master Jesus, we must be born again. This is a sexual problem. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. If our sexual drives command us, drive us, compel us, whether it's fantasies and desires and lusts, then we are not a master of ourselves. Instead, Logical that a spiritual master is someone who has full control of who they are, not by avoiding really instinct, sexuality, but understanding it and integrating it within a fully developed personality, mind, and being. Rather than have a sexuality that is contrary to our spirituality, instead, we make the sexual spiritual. We make something that is commonly filthy and vulgar and make it divine through different procedures. The sexuality of an angel is very different from that of a demon. All beings have sexual drive. Whether or not we are in full mastery of it is another thing. So this aspect of the teaching is very well described and explained in the writings of Samal and Vior. I would invite you to study his books, especially from Goring Publishing. You can study a book especially called The Perfect Matrimony. That one introduce you to this understanding of the deeper esoteric aspect of religion and how the knowledge of a marital relationship between a husband and wife can empower one's spirituality. 
we have a question. What is the difference between bodhisattva and bodhicitta? Bodhicitta is the altruistic mind of enlightenment that seeks to liberate others from suffering, coupled with selflessness and wisdom of reality. A bodhisattva is an individual that develops within the bodhicitta. Bodhicitta emerges first, that altruistic enlightened compassion, that Christic love, the selflessness of divine mercy. That attitude has to be cultivated first. A bodhisattva is a beginning level master who, because of their work and initiation, has developed a state of mind and heart and body that can manage the voltage of divinity and incarnate divinity. Bodhi is light, is wisdom. A bodhisattva is a being, an entity, an individual who incarnates the divine, the bodhi, the wisdom. And obviously in our Gnostic studies, our terms, we call it Christ. And the incarnation of Christ, symbolized by the Master Jesus, is something that we can do ourselves if we're properly prepared. A bodhisattva is a being who is mastering bodhicitta. It's like a child, in a sense, growing within the embryo or the chick within an egg. The egg is the bodhicitta. It is the seed plot, the potential, the basis, the energy that can give life to a master. So bodhisattva emerges from bodhicitta. You develop compassion and selflessness first, and then through that work, you can take a much higher path in your spiritual development if you reach that point. A bodhisattva is really, you know, a master who is beginning to walk the path of Christ. You can study more about this in a course from Glorian Publishing called The Path of the Bodhisattva, which integrates and explains the synthetic teachings of Christianity and Buddhism in their most fundamental depth. We have a question. Can you go over why it's called the seal of compassion? What is a seal? It is the covenant. It is the culmination, the perfection. When you have written a letter to someone, you seal it. You've finished it. The love of divinity is a seal, the seal of the heart. Obviously, we're beginners and we're learning to develop the heart. But we perfect our compassion when we fully eliminate our own desires, our defects, our errors, our vices. And therefore, Christ's love is the seal of compassion, the enlightened divine understanding of nature and reality that expresses for all beings and fights for their alleviation and their suffering. That seal is something initiatic. You know, there are degrees, right? Levels upon levels of work. You can study this in a, this path itself in a course we've been giving called The Voice of the Silence, a scripture transcribed by Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. We seal our work when we perfect ourselves. And obviously, that's the goal. We want to be sealed by compassion. We don't want to have any fault any defect anymore. But that's a long, patient work. We take our time. You know, we have to work humbly. We have a question. Is Atman the same as Bodhicitta? 
in a sense, there's a relationship because Atman, to use the Hindu Sanskrit term, relates to the Hebrew Chesed, the spirit, mercy, the love of the divine being within our heart. There's a relationship there, but Bodhicitta also is really many things. In the most introductory level of Buddhism, Bodhicitta is the aspiration to help others. In Mahayana Buddhism, it is understanding of emptiness, selflessness, and compassion for suffering. Within the forms of Tantric Buddhism, it is the sexual energy itself. In a sense, the spirit deeply relates to the sexual energy, as do all parts of the being. But bodhicitta is like the virtues we develop, like jewels in ourselves through purifying our mind and heart through the creative force itself. So there are levels of application of bodhicitta, but Atman, you know, is the spirit, is our own inner God. So the spirit mentioned in the Christian gospel is Atman, the real being, the real self, the spirit. And then we reach Atman has said the spirit by working with our bodhicitta, our compassion and enlightened selfless wisdom with the sexual energy. We have a question. I have some gnosis of the topics explained tonight, and I'm at a point in the path where I feel pride and lust has left me vulnerable to different kinds of attacks. And I recently fell from a celibate state along with making a decision to use a drug that I was addicted to for many years, but I've not used in the last five. Obviously, the mind wants me to believe I have failed, and I is working on me to throw all my hard work down the drain. My question is, how or where do I find help in learning more advanced techniques of protection? Is there a physical Gnostic church in Chicago in which I can talk to a priest for guidance because I've lost a lot of confidence in myself in recent weeks. Obviously, in terms of drug addiction, whatever the substance may be or abuse may be, it's good to consult first a professional, especially what advice they can give in terms of, you know, how to cope with, you know, recovery, especially, and get the support you need on a professional basis. But, um, Obviously, if I'm understanding your question right. Um, but regardless of any mistake, you know, obviously we are faulty. We make errors. And we make mistakes because obviously we are flawed. And sometimes a mistake of that nature or, you know, any type of downfall, whether it's morally, ethically, psychologically, spiritually, sexually, you know, this can give us a, fa a feeling of defeatism. You know, the feeling that I can't do this work because I failed so much, right? And there's this pessimism and doubt and self-flagellation and despair, which accompanies it. So there are techniques that we use for protection, you know, especially from outside forces and also our own mind. But really the best technique for self-defense against any type of onslaught is our own psychological state. Salman Vera mentioned that the best weapon we can have in life is a correct psychological state. The correct state of mind. This is bodhicitta. 
We cultivate bodhicitta through meditation. We look in ourselves, our actions, our mistakes, our desires, how our mind reacted to a situation, what we did, how we behaved. And we seek insight. We go to the root. We look for the root of the problem. Some desire in us made us vulnerable. Now, obviously, you can use prayers and mantras and certain exercises for protection, like we provide in a course called Spiritual Defense on our website, or from Glorian Publishing's course, Defense for Spiritual Warfare. But none of those techniques will have any effect if you know we don't understand ourselves. They help. They complement. They can give us a lot of force, especially when we wield them with intelligence. They're not effective if, you know, we don't use them as they're intended. For example, if you train at a martial arts dojo for any kind of, you know, self-defense or whatnot, if you look, train with a weapon, you are only effective in accordance with proper technique. And that's something you learn through training. The same thing with the prayers and mantras of spiritual protection. The way that we learn to train in self-defense is by really being understanding of ourselves and following our intuition, our heart. Your heart is the best defense if we listen to it very deeply and follow its intuitions, especially when they inspire us to do noble things. As for Anasic Church in Chicago, you know, we do have a center here. Um, yes, I am a priest and we do offer classes and we do, you know, offer instruction for people who, who want it. So our class schedule is online. You can, you know, Find a date if one's convenient for you. We'd be happy to talk with you. We have a question. I'm currently reading about spiritual vampirism. Recognizing how this can be an aggregate in one or more of the three brains feeding internally on, my, on one's own energy. Any suggestions on certain prayers or practices which can help to deal with this? The way we pray upon ourselves? So obviously there are beings who steal energy from other people. We call them vampires, you know, psychologically speaking. More importantly, our own lust is a vampire. We try to save the sexual energy and our lust wants to expel it, to steal it, to use it for passion. The best self-defense that you can use against your own lust is meditation. You observe the fact, you observe what happened in your mind, your heart, your body. You suspend the senses, you go within. You look for the root of that lust. You ask for insight, clarity, and deep comprehension from your inner divinity. And with patience, you begin to see more and more about the root of that problem. You know, obviously you can re refer to prayers like Belilin, which is available on Glorian and Publishing too for defense against lust, especially, not only within other people, but ourselves. That's very effective too. But we will always fall prey to lust if we don't comprehend it and eliminate it. That is the key. The method for eliminating defects was given in a course on Gnostic meditation we have available on our website. The last lecture in that series called Retrospection Meditation. I suggest you study and practice it. There is a question. Is there any time when it's possible that we have received an initiation of major mysteries, but we are unaware of it? 
some of them are mentioned in the Three Mountains, I believe, that when he had when he went through the first initiation of Major Mysteries, that he had no memory of it. So what happened was that he had the experience, but was not conscious. Later, his wife, Master Lil Talantes, uh, informed him about what happened, and then by meditating, he remembered. So it's possible, especially with the first degree. Obviously, the higher you go, the more consciousness you have. So it's more likely that you will remember. But yeah, it is something that can happen in the beginning, especially. Also, kind of adding to one of the former questions, uh, this person meant uh, in terms of celibacy, um, is chastity and celibacy the same thing? No. In our studies, chastity has to do with upright, virtuous use of sexuality, purity in sex. It doesn't mean avoidance. Celibacy is avoidance of sex. We make a distinction there because many people have been confused over the centuries, really, because they believe that chastity in the Bible and other religious practices in Scripture has to do with avoiding sexual contact. But that's not the truth. Christ said you must be born again. And we are born again through an immaculate conception. Meaning, we give birth to the Spirit by transforming the sexual energy in our marriage. You cannot be born, through, again, through celibacy, by avoiding sex. And again, one cannot be a master of oneself by avoiding sex. We have to learn to transform it as a, into a sacrament. Okay, um, any other questions? Take a few more if you'd like. Um, we have a question. How does becoming more like children, as we were as children in the past, help with developing compassion? You look at a baby, you know, how much love a child has for its parents. How much love? When you are in front of a child, we can really see the beauty of the untarnished essence, the real soul of a person that is not yet marred by personality, culture, or whatever. It's just the radiant essence or essential spirit and soul of a child, of a being that is innocent and pure. That state is a analog for a deeper reality that we can cultivate in our adulthood. Becoming like children, again, is not about becoming naive or stupid. It's about becoming more clear in our intentions, humble, pure of mind, but with the added sapience of having conquered and comprehended sin. If you look at a child, you really have a barometer, you know, you see what we used to be as ch children, you know, before we entered the world and maybe became jaded. And when you see the love that a child has, you realize that, you know, compassion is like that, very pure, very pristine. Now, the compassion of a child pales in comparison to the compassion of a master. In the former state, it's Edenic. And in the latter case, it is the return to Eden with greater knowledge and wisdom. But yeah, I mean, personally, when I've been around children, especially in, you know, 
my extended family, I definitely witnessed a state of being that is really inspirational, you know, something that we've lost with our adulthood, but that we can regain. But, you know, becoming more like children doesn't mean, you know, it means to eliminate pride, anger, fear, lust, hatred, desire. And instead, we develop the full capacity of real conscious feeling, which is superior. Some people think that by eliminating anger or negativity that they're no longer going to feel. And this is wrong. Listen to a symphony of Beethoven. It's tempests. It's calm. It's rhythms. There's a great dynamic range of emotion in his symphonies. And they express the full depth and breadth and nature of the soul. So compassion is like that, especially the ninth, you know, the return to heaven, the ode to joy, or his choral symphony in C minor, I believe, maybe D minor, I don't remember, but um, where you hear the compassion of God expressing through a chorus of initiates who have resonated with that law. That is real compassion, real harmony. So, Becoming innocent again is like becoming that. Music is very profound. It can teach us about the heart. Okay, so we have a uh, take one more question. I've been listening to teachings regarding the absolute from people that say that it can be done instantly. And is a matter of the mind. This is deeply confusing to me because I thought it was a matter of the body and sexual energy, but they basically see that body and self is within the mind. So there's nothing but the mind. Can you expand on this? You know, in a sense, mind is a form of matter. And the physical body obviously is a form of matter in a physical level. There's a deep connection between the mind, the mental body, and the lower bodies, whether it's astral, vital, or physical. There's a deep connection there that we find connected through our three brains, which are three centers. These three brains are not merely physical. They're also energetic, vital, emotional, astral, and mental. They even relate to our volition, our will. There are levels and strata of matter, energy, and perception as mapped by the tree of life. It's possible to have a temporary experience, a vacation within the absolute by learning to meditate. This is like getting a visa and living in another country for a little bit and then coming back eventually to America because your time's up. It's the same thing with a meditative experience of the absolute. You can be a vacationer there. You can visit there. doesn't mean you're a citizen. That's a matter of initiation, right? Mastering all the levels of the tree of life. But as to say whether the physical body is and self is within the mind, obviously, you know, the body is an entity in itself. It's a separate vehicle. But in terms of perspective, when you are physically awake in, in a vigil state, your mental body and your astral body operate through your physical and your physical brain and your emotional center and your physical body. There's a connection there. Obviously, the mind can wander, but 
you know, in reality, to say that the body and self is within the mind is um, kind of a simplification, I would say, of a deeper reality. There's a connection there that, you know, we experience it with our thoughts and feelings in daily life. But to say that the body and self is within the mind, like the mental body, it's all in the mental state, you know, I think is ignoring or missing the point that, or maybe I'm not understanding something about your, the, the, you know, the question. Um, there is a separation there, which is you especially experience when we dream, you know, the mental body or the astral body travels outside the physical body. There's a connection, but I wouldn't say that our physical body is within the mind. You know, there's an interconnection there. The tree of life and all the dimensions interpenetrate and co-penetrate within this physical moment. You know, but as for everything being mind, in a sense, in a cosmic sense, philosophically, yes. The universe is a form of mind. It's different levels and densities mapped by the tree of life. It's the mind of divinity, you know, levels of nature. But I would not mistake physical matter with mental matter like you experience in the world of Netzach within a dream. Very different. Okay, we have one more question. As consciousness expands, you said we are confronted with more tests and ordeals at an increased rate. What happens if we fail an ordeal but have some awareness of the failure either while it's happening or in retrospect? At that point, it's like, you know, you make a mistake, but you're kind of, I mean, you're not so invested in it that you're making it more empowered. Obviously, there's degrees and levels of downfall, especially in a sexual sense or maybe like with a, with a fall or with a moment of anger. You may know that it's wrong and that it's happening, but you may not have the power to fully control it. It's like a basically a demon has taken possession of our three brains and is acting. Now, if you fail an ordeal and you have some understanding of how, why you failed, that's better than having no understanding. Now the real work is to sit down and meditate and understand the root of these defects, you know, to go deeper. Um, and to uh, even understand in retrospect is better than to not understand at all. You know, be patient because it's hard, but it can be done. You just got to be patient. Okay, we're going to conclude here. I thank you all for coming. We'll have this lecture up and running on our podcast, but uh, we appreciate the turnout. We'll have uh, an in-person lecture actually this Saturday, but then we'll have, uh, I believe, another online lecture in the coming weeks. So in this series, it'll be the kind of the sequel to this. It'll be called uh, Christ's Wisdom, the Seal of the Truth, building on some of these concepts we talked about today. So I thank you all for coming. <music>
May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.